According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me one more time, if you would, in Matthew chapter 21, continuing uh, episode 5 in the uh, final work of week at Jerusalem. We uh, introduced this uh, episode last week. There was a question regarding episode 5, because uh, we had uh, combined two of them, actually. We had combined two and four when we had done that. So we we went from three to five, and and, uh, someone, my mother or somebody, said, well, what happened to episode four? Uh, We did four at the same time that we did two. So when we combined two and four, then that meant we went uh, to three and then to five. And I think that's the last one we'll try to combine. We'll probably just handle the rest of them one by one. As we, I guess, too complicated otherwise, trying to <laughs> trying to combine things. We'll go one by one now from here to the cross and the, after the cross, resurrection and ascension here in uh, the harmony of the Gospels. All right, episode five, Sanhedrin challenges Jesus and they're answered by parables. And uh, this takes us through the last uh, portion of chapter 21 and through uh, the first 14 verses of chapter 22. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, and, and the participle there for Didasco while he was teaching, uh, right in the midst of his teaching, barging into his class, interrupting what he was doing, said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was it from what source, from heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, then he will say to us, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. So, in other words, they're stuck. He gave them an A and a B, and they can choose neither. And uh, so answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. All right, that's what we covered last week. We're going to move on. And we also covered the two sons before we ran out of time in verses 28 through 32. And uh, today we're going to handle the parable of the landowner uh, in verses 33 and following. Before we do any of that, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, making sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, prepared to handle spiritual truth. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity we have to come together. And Father, we thank you for the warm building. We thank you for the uh, place where we can assemble and in uh, comfort, out of the cold. We can study the Word of God. And Father, we just uh, thank you for the grace provision. Uh, we recognize there are the, the rolling blackouts taking place. So uh, we'll just keep teaching until we lose power and then we'll decide what to do after that. So Father, uh, thank you for this time. Thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, we'll just go until the lights turn off, and then after that, I guess uh, MP3 is done, but we can keep going, I suppose, as long as uh, the building retains heat. I don't know how long this building will retain heat, but we'll uh, we'll see how that goes. Okay, <clears throat> I don't have any paper notes to work with tonight or today, so I'm just going to follow along the slideshow like uh, everybody else is doing here. Point one: the very body which was plotting his death. 
That's the Sanhedrin, uh, the Jewish elders uh, described in John 11, verses 47 through 53. Uh, They're now presenting a rebellious challenge to his authority. They're demanding that he explain himself or prove that he is uh, worthy of teaching here. They're interrupting his teaching. We have some subpoints under this. We'll skip through that. I did enjoy very much, though, the way that he answered their question with a question and uh, left him free to disregard their challenge because they wouldn't answer him. So uh, kind of a neat uh, turning of the tables in that regard. The chief priests and the elders didn't approach the Lord's question on the basis of truth. He asked them a question and they didn't ponder what's the correct answer. What is the right answer? What is the answer that conforms to reality? In other words, what is truth? Uh, they had no interest in truth. You understand that. The, the brood of vipers has no interest in truth. He is a liar from the beginning. Uh, his his uh, system is a lie, and that's why he's so opposed to God. God is truth, and in him there is no lie. And we understand how that conflict comes together. And so given who they are serving, given uh, their uh, obedience to uh, their father the devil, described in John 8, uh, it's not surprising that they're not approaching the, this question on the basis of truth. It's kind of like... Um, A lot of things we observe in our culture today. All right. Point D. I don't remember how much I stressed this a week ago. Uh, The people, the the, the believer just sitting out there listening to this teaching, the common believer, they, they, they weren't hampered like the religious leaders. The religious leaders truly were were handcuffed. They couldn't believe the truth. They were afraid of the truth. Uh, Like, that movie quote, uh, you can't handle the truth, okay? They, um, they, uh, they have too much on the line. They have too much uh, that, that they are vulnerable to in terms of public opinion, in terms of the esteem amongst themselves. Uh, they're, they're very much uh, insistent upon their own pecking order and their own, uh, their own uh, prideful estimation of one another and so forth, that they're followers of Hillel or they're followers of Shammai, or they have come to an insight where their ruling, their opinion, is, is now actually a matter of record that will uh, find its way into the Mishnah at some point, that will find its way into the Talmud at some point, that will become uh, woven into the fabric of rabbinic Judaism for the, the centuries to follow. Uh, they are very much trapped by their religious structure, hampered by their legalistic religious structure. Well, the people don't have that. They're simply watching the Pharisees teach, watching the the Sadducees teach, listening to Jesus teach, and they go, wait a minute, something's different here, okay? And they understand that Jesus' teaching is with authority. And then they see the miracles, and the Pharisees and Sadducees aren't doing any miracles. And so they start to notice some differences, and they start to recognize certain things that, uh, you know, they understood John was a prophet, and they had no reason not to understand John as a prophet. Uh, we see down uh, lower in this context, in verse uh, 46, that uh, they considered Jesus to be a prophet. The people weren't handicapped. They didn't have any uh, political reasons to deny him prophetic status. They, they viewed he was a prophet. Spoke with authority, did miracles. Okay, so they're not hampered by that. And, and so there's a lot. I probably should have broken point D into a couple of different points. But it's something to consider if your religious structure is keeping you from acknowledging the reality of truth. Um, You've got to dump that religious structure. Okay? Uh, we answer for the truth. We should be worshiping God in spirit and in truth. 
And so that's the thing. And I've encountered it in, in different theological approaches. People, they're looking at the verses and they see what the verse says, but they can't admit what the verse says because their theology says something else. Okay? Their theology is Arminian and, and, and they're looking at this and it sure looks like sovereignty, so they can't go there because of their Arminian theology. Okay? Or their Calvinistic theology or what have you. See, in some cases, their bracketdoctrinal theology says, oh, well, uh, you know... Uh, that's kind of what that verse says, but Colonel didn't teach it that way. So I, I, that can't be right. Just stop. What are you doing? You submit to the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures and see if these things are so. Okay? And uh, if you think uh, any pastor is uh, you know, infallible or couldn't have made a mistake or couldn't have taught something, not saying he was wrong, just saying he had a different conviction. Here's my conviction. What's your conviction? Search the Scriptures. See if they're so. All right, under point two then, the parable of the two sons. Uh, you remember this one? The man has two sons. He comes to the first one and says, son, go to work today in the vineyard. So you got an older boy and a younger boy. We can call him Bob and Chris or whatever you want to call him. <laughs> okay. Um, just because I happen to have two sons. Okay. This would be entirely different if it was two daughters, but we're not going to go there today. All right. <laughs> son, go to work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. Son number one was openly defiant. Son number one was openly defiant. First of all, understand this parable is a follow-up to the previous exchange. And uh, it's interesting. He continues to teach, and he just keeps on going. Uh, he says, I'm not going to answer you your question either, but I'll tell you another story. <laughs> he tells him this story. And then when he finishes this one, he says in verse 33, listen to another parable. Okay? I mean, the Lord's on a roll here. He's not going to stop. He's not slowing down. And I, I enjoy this. I think there's a, there's a pattern here that we might be able to learn from. So it is a follow-up to the previous exchange. Um, it is um, an interesting follow-up in the way that it presents the entrance into the kingdom, described in this way. Son number one verbally defies his father. This is point B in the outline, main point two, sub point B. Son number one verbally defies his father, but regrets it later and actually does what he was commanded to do. Okay. So when face to face, he said, no, I'm not going to do that. And then the, the father goes and he actually comes to the second son in verse 30. So the man came to the second son. And so we don't know, you know what the proximity was or how far that was. But he's no longer in the presence of the first son when he goes and he finds the second son. And I think there's no reason to believe nothing in this text indicates that the father ever knew that the first son changed his mind or the first son regretted it or felt bad. Uh, there's no there's no verse that tells us there's any kind of follow-up between the father and that first son. And so uh, the man comes to the second and says the same thing. He says, son, go to work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Okay, so he says he'll do it. And then presumably, you know, father goes back to his coffee or whatever he's, you know, football game he's watching. And he doesn't know. As far as the father knows, the first son's a rebel. The second son's a good son. Okay? And then apart from the father's observation, the rebel had to change a heart and went out and did it. And the one who thought he was obedient was actually not. Um, the verse doesn't exactly give a motivation for why he didn't or why he said he would. He just answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. So did he have a regret about saying yes? Did he, was he lying at the time? Did he mean it truthfully when he said he would? And then he didn't. More information we just don't have. Okay. 
And so as far as the father knows, he goes out later in the afternoon, he sees the work's done, and what's he going to assume? You know, well, the second boy did it. You know, Chris did it. Bob blew it off. Chris did it. Okay. He doesn't know. Chris blew it off. Bob's the one that actually felt bad about it and went out there and did it. Okay. The older son. I'm picking on my two boys today. All right. So, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. Okay. And ultimately, that's true. Yes, the first one eventually did the will of the father. He didn't do it immediately, but uh, he didn't do it maybe with the right motivation. Does God reward your work when you're doing it out of guilt? There's a question for you. <laughs> you know, do you get half credit? you get partial credit? Okay. you get extra credit for making up for... You know, it's interesting. We're so human in our approach that, well, okay. They didn't exactly obey, but... At the end of the okay, finally it did sort of get done. We we get complacent and we get to where we can start to live with that in different realms. That's not what God expects, is it? He wants the obedience. We're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that's not that doesn't mean that we we obey half-heartedly or we obey on our terms or we obey when it's convenient for us. Or we'll do what God wants so long as it doesn't get in the way of what I want and because I'm doing my stuff first. And then as I have time left over, I'll go ahead and knock out one or two things that, that you know God might want me to do. And so it is an interesting reply. Which of the two did the will of his father? And he said the first. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. And uh, he's got a point to make. And as soon as they answer that the first group was at least late about it but they did it eventually they did it he said you guys aren't even doing that you guys aren't even feeling guilty about not doing what the father has for you to do you rejected it uh you and uh, and you still don't even feel guilty even watching watching these other ones all right so with point c then son number two verbally obeys his father but does not follow through with the actual command so does that count saying father i'll do it here i am send me and all these great intentions but then you don't actually do it See, there's no reward for intentions. There's no reward for, <clears throat> I should say, not intentions necessarily, but for stating that you're going to obey and then not obeying. That's not rewardable. Now, it is interesting. Whatever the spark for regrets, we don't know. What was it that caused that first son to have regret? Afterwards, he regretted it and he went. Um... Whatever it was, it wasn't over the example of seeing Sun Two out there working in the in the vineyard, because Sun Two never went to the vineyard. So it could not have been the fact that he saw somebody else was doing the work. That's that is humiliating. That is uh, shame, shaming to a believer when it is something that you know you should be doing, and you're not doing it, and you see somebody else doing it. Okay, uh, a lot of times this is where the wife can win her husband without a word being spoken. Second uh, Peter chapter three. You know, she doesn't have to preach at him. She just has to model the the biblical way of life. And by her chaste and respectful behavior, by her biblical behavior, she's going to church. She's in the word. She's in prayer. She's setting the example. She doesn't have to say anything, and that can win her husband without a word. We're told in Second Peter chapter three, and uh, that that could be the case, but not in this instance because the second boy never makes it out to the field, so he never. Son number one doesn't see that example. And it, it's, uh, it's probably to his credit 
that without seeing another example, it was all internal to his mind, to his soul and his obedience, that, uh, that he had regrets without any positive example to learn from. It came from his own conviction in his own heart. Okay? And that's where you really want the conviction to come from. That's a much stronger conviction. Uh, if, it, if it's an internal one instead of an external one. So, um, I mean, it can come either way. But the fact that he wasn't watching somebody else do it right uh, meant that it was something internal to him that then convicted him in his soul to say, you know what, I need to obey my father. And he did. And he did. Son number one had regrets without any positive examples to learn from. These religious leaders, though, are completely off the charts because they have positive examples to learn from. They got the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes, and they're seeing repentance. They're seeing obedience to the will of the Father. Remember what's the Father's command? To believe in the Son, <laughs> right? This is the commandment from the Father. This is the will of the Father, that you believe in Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. And so here's these tax collectors and these prostitutes and these sinners and these folks that the religious leaders view as so inferior and so unworthy. They, they, you know, these folks, by their occupation, by their lifestyle, they're not eligible to enter into the solemn assembly. They can't come and into the temple precincts. They can't uh, worship at Passover. This is the Passover season. We're, we're heading in. This is Tuesday of the Passion Week. And, and the Pharisees, of course, are entirely uh, sanctified. I mean, they in, in, in the external ritual. Always ceremonially clean. Always uh, resisting any external defilement. See. And uh, with such a, a prideful air of superiority looking down on this crowd. And so when Jesus says, truly I say to you, a main lego soy. Um, since in Greek one has seen that phrase in a couple of their homework assignments lately. Uh, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Oh my goodness. I don't think there's anything more insulting he could have told them right there. You know, them fighting words. As far as these... Uh, holier than thou guys are concerned. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him and you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. So forget repentance. They didn't even rise to the level of regret. Remorse. Okay? Which is a lower standard, which is a lesser, uh, more human reaction. All right, so that's the last... Detail on that, which gets us now to the new ground on main point three, the parable of the landowner. Listen to another parable. Okay. He's not letting up, is he? <laughs> yeah, they had a question for him. Challenging. They don't want truth. They just want him to stop teaching. Who do you think you are? What are you doing here? Get out of here. Who gave you this authority? You're not licensed to teach. Um, so he says, all right, answer my question. I'll answer yours. And they don't. They can't. Then he gives them a parable. Then he gives him another parable. He says, all right, listen to this one. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first. And they did the same thing to them. They did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son. He sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. 
I don't know what gives them that idea. <laughs> you know? I mean, is this uh, landowner kind of naive or what? But um, in any event, it's just a story, so don't get too upset with it. Um, but I, you know, I want to scream to this landowner, you know, you idiot, don't send your son. These guys are thugs and murderers. They will respect my son. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll illustrate this here in a moment. But the unique relationship between God the Father and God the Son, the love that the Father has for the Son is the motivation for creation itself. And the desire to magnify the Son is the, is the focal point of the entire plan of God from Alpha to Omega. And uh, the willingness to sacrifice his son is the, is the, uh, the actual nucleus of the, of the sacrificial love that paid the ultimate price in order to redeem us. So you've got to understand all that as you're reading the story and recognizing his attitude here. They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. There had been a previous message where the Lord had rebuked these religious leaders and talked about how the kingdom of God suffers violence and evil men seize it by force. Remember that? It's a similar language to here. It's a similar concept. Any uh, satanic substitute for God's plan uh, views that they can simply derail what the Father's design and do their own thing as far as uh, seizing the, uh, the inheritance. So they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Out of the vineyard, interestingly enough. They didn't just kill him in the vineyard. The others had been killed in the vineyard, but here they took him out of the vineyard before they killed him. And I think that's, uh, again, it's a picture. There's a, there's a uh, certain symbolism to that, a foreshadowing of that. Jesus Christ will suffer outside the city, uh, even as the sacrificial, uh, the, the scapegoat was taken outside the camp and things of that nature. All right, so the heir now is dead. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And boy, do they have a long list here. They, <laughs> you know, this is, they can relate to this because this is, this is vengeance and that's their, uh, their bread and butter. You know, this is, this is uh, wrath upon a wrongdoer. This is, uh, boy, this, this gets their hackles up. It's almost like Nathan um, giving his parable to David. And David would just live it with this man and the little sheep and the absolutely live it. So like David, they fall for it and they hang themselves. Um, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. <laughs> okay. Fun play on words. Fun. You know, what other end would wretches go to than a wretched end? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and he will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds of the proper seasons. Everything has to be right. Everything has to be fair. There's got to be a standard of righteousness. And they deserve death. And uh, here they are in their darkness speaking the truth. <laughs> and it's glorious the way the Father does this. And so Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures... I think that's even more insulting than saying tax collectors and prostitutes are going to get into the kingdom of God before them. Did you not ever read the scriptures? They read the scriptures daily, hours and hours at a time, memorizing the scriptures. The, 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 the pinnacle of the, of the uh, rabbis of their day could have the Torah memorized. 
have, did you never read in the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And, um, of course, but would they relate that verse to themselves? That's, that's, the, that's the key here. So therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Now, understand, this is a restatement from verse 41, but this is coming from the Lord's uh, ruling, not from their opinion. Okay, So this, uh, if, if verse 41 is debatable in our development, uh, I don't think it is debatable in our development, but uh, if it is debatable because it's coming from the mouth of carnal Pharisees, uh, verse 42, you can, uh, 43 and 44 is coming from Christ. That's a, that's, a, that's a different approach. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Man, this is going to take some work. This, uh, we're not going to wrap this up today. <laughs> All right. Uh, what do we have left? We've got today, we've got next week. I've got to figure out how many more Wednesdays we have. Before uh, before Kiev, I think we got two more. Then uh, to wrap up the chapter here, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And uh, when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. All right, so here's the parable of the landowner. First of all, the landowner. We've had this character before. He's the oika despotes, master of the house. Landowner. Oikos, meaning house. Despotes, meaning tyrant. Despot. Sovereign authority. Okay. Despot. I like despot. Despot's a good word. Oikos, despot. The despot of the house. 36.17. Used 12 times in the New Testament. All in the Synoptic Gospels. So the landowner makes numerous appearances in the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew 10.25. Matthew 13, 27 and 52. And these are all going to be very well known to you. Matthew 20, verses 1 and 11. This was the Oika Despotes that hired laborers early in the morning. And then he hired more laborers later in the day. Kept hiring laborers until even an hour before closing time, he hired a last batch of laborers. And then the Oika Despotes, because he was generous, uh, paid them all the same. Even the guys that had only worked a single hour got a full day's wages. It'll be used one final time in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, coming up in chapter 24, in verse 43. You know what, I want to edit that. Because the Matthew 21 use isn't isn't in the parentheses, and it should be. I left it out. So 21.33, and uh, landowner. And then it comes back again in... uh, Nope, I guess that's the only use. It's a different term. And I'll, I'll edit that parenthesis for next week. Because it goes from Matthew 10 to Matthew 13, Matthew 20, Matthew 24. And I don't actually list the Matthew 21 use of it. And that should be in there. All right. Uh, it also appears in Mark 14, 14. And uh, Luke 12, 39. Luke 13, 25. Luke 14, 21. Luke 22, 11. And I'll give you a chance to jot all those down. Wicked despotes, and these these ought to be fairly familiar to you. But the point being, in every story where it's told, it's an it's an illustration of authority, uh, and that's contained within the idea of 
oika despotes, the head of the house, the, um, the owner, the sovereign. If you own the property, you should have uh, part of ownership is uh, the right to use, to make use, make use of, to benefit from, and so forth. Uh, the idea of ownership. The Latin on this is interesting, too, because the Latin on this is the pater uh, familius, which was encoded in Roman law. In Roman law, the pater familius was the sovereign law within the within the home. Not even the the Roman law uh, stopped at the boundaries of the of the Roman house. And uh, within the Roman house, the uh, the pater familius was the head of the home, and he was the sovereign within that house. And uh, even carries through the Middle Ages on into modern times with the philosophy. You know that a man's house is his castle. That this is your uh, you know your your property your uh, place of freedom, your place of protection. Uh, you, you're, in our country, anyway, you're protected against the uh, uh, unreasonable search and seizure. You, you're supposed to be secure in your home and in your effects. comes from this philosophy, you understand. It's starting to disappear these days. Okay? Because um, there is a competing philosophy that says that you don't own what you own that uh, the collective actually owns it and you don't own property because it belongs to the earth and the environment and and so uh, you actually don't even own what you think you own Uh, that's a competing philosophy and and right now they're they're at odds with each other and so uh, anyway not to get off on that tangent Um, real quick we won't spend a ton of time on this but it is it is important because in so often is in the case when Satan wants to twist doctrine one of the common ways that he does so is to attack the authority behind the doctrine. He attacks the authority orientation. Adam and Eve, Adam's the authority, he attacks through Eve. Uh, God says, you know, what does he do? He attacks the authority of what God said. Did God really say that? Well, he didn't mean that or he was lying to you because here's why. And it's an attack on authority in, in most of Satan's uh, uh, lies. So Matthew 10:25, a disciple is not above his teacher nor is a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of the household? Okay, And so this is uh, important because it identifies, of course, Jesus Christ as the head of the household. And uh, when it comes to the royal family of God, that becomes all the more vivid for us, doesn't it? I'm happy to be a member of that household with Christ as the oika despates. Kingdom of Heaven parables in Matthew 13. Um, two different parables, one used in verse 27 and one used in verse 52. And uh, the um, kingdom of heaven is uh, a field here, a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. So the slaves of the Oika Despates, the slaves of the landowner, came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And so there's the uh, use of it there. Down to verse 52. The pages are sticky today. The new Bible usually takes about a year to break in a good Bible here. Verse 52. Jesus said to him, therefore, every scribe who has become 
A disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Matthew 20 is the uh, parable of the laborers that came at the different hours of the day. We mentioned that already. Matthew 24, verse 43. Be on the alert. You do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the wicked despotes had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into if the head of the house had known. All right, that's Matthew twenty-four forty-three, which has its parallel in Luke twelve thirty-nine. Uh, Mark... 14, 14, some of these that are repeated, we won't repeat, but Mark 14, 14, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city. This is uh, on Thursday night, getting ready for Passover dinner. A man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the Weka Despates. The teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you the large upper room furnished and ready, prepared for us there. He himself. Uh, typically, the Wicca despotes would have a slave that would be a door warden. And then you'd have another slave uh, for the upstairs. You'd have another slave uh, as, a, as a dining room steward. And, uh, but neither, none of those slaves are going to be involved in this because as soon as uh, the owner of the house is notified that the teacher needs this room, then he himself will show you the large upper room furnished. We'll, uh, we'll tackle that when we get to that event. All right, then uh, Luke is a repeat of the Matthew 24. That's Luke 12:39, And uh, Luke 22:11 is a repeat of the one we just read in Mark 14, 14. But uh, Luke 13, 25 is unique and Luke 14, 21 is unique. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I will tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then 1421. You know, there ought to be a sense of urgency in your evangelism because, uh, you know, when is that door going to be shut? From a church age perspective, it, it's shut when the trumpet sounds and we're out of here. Okay. From a tribulational perspective, it's shut when uh, the Lord descends with the, uh, and, and lands on the mount, and then the saved are saved and the lost are lost, and they're not going to uh, be entering into the millennial kingdom. The unbelievers are going to be removed. And here's the uh, the dinner. And uh, he invited many, but at the dinner hour he said to slave to those who had been invited, saying, Come, for everything is ready now. They all began to make excuses. I bought a piece of land. I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. He doesn't say, please consider me excused, but that's what he's weaseling about. And the slave came back and reported to his... Wake out to his, uh, no, to his master, to his 
master. Then the oikodespotes became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once in the streets and lanes and of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. All right. This, by the way, is very much similar to the message we had last week where he said, you know, prostitutes and tax collectors are coming in before you are. Okay? The lame and the crippled and those that maybe they're not ceremonially clean, but they're going to accept the invitation. It's a grace offer and they're going to accept it. And that's, uh, that's the pattern for what we're dealing with. All right. Wake up to spates. Enough on that. But understand that that's sovereign. In the culture, it's sovereign. In the, under law, it's sovereign. Okay? Uh, under the Roman system, in fact, I wouldn't even be a paterfamilias because my father is still living. Okay? And so um, neither myself or my brother or my sons, uh, we would all still be following under my dad's uh, authority. Sovereign authority as the paterfamilias of our particular branch. You know, and he assumed that when his father died, say. I would not assume that, or, or my brother wouldn't assume that in his branch until our father died. And then we become our own paterfamiliuses in our own branches at that point, is how it worked in the Roman system. And everything up into and including capital punishment for disgraced children, for shameful daughters, for um, slaves. In fact, slaves, there was not even any cause that was needed to be stated. Um, things of that nature. All right, back to our text. What is it this landowner has done? He's, he's done five things. In the interest of time, I'm not going to spell out vocabulary or take us through each one of these. Although, I mean, we, you could. What is this uh, picture of? If he plants the vineyard, if he walls it about, if he digs the, the well. Let me get back here. So there was a Wicadaspates uh, who planted a vineyard. All right. So whose vineyard is it? It's his. He planted it. He's the landowner. And uh, he put a wall around it. So now he's not only has he invested in this, but he's actually made a, uh, an increase to his investment by protecting it. Okay. The wall is defensive against people and animals. And... Uh, a wine press in it, dug a wine press in it. Maybe some landowners wouldn't do that. Maybe they didn't have enough space to do that. Maybe they wouldn't be wealthy enough to do that. Maybe they uh, could plant a vineyard, but they would have to take the grapes elsewhere to be pressed. See, but he's got a large enough operation going here that he's doing it all in-house. He's doing it all in his own uh, resources. And he built a tower. And he built a tower. And rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. All right. So this is a significant operation. Absolutely significant. And whose is it? It's his. And what did he do? Planted, wall, dug, built, rented, and went. Rented and went. Okay. Now he rented it out to vine growers. And that's, the story really focuses more on the vine growers, on the farmers, than it does on him, the Georgos. Give you that vocabulary here in a moment. Um... But what did, look at all the things he did, and look at what they did. Showed up, okay? Um, took the job. Agreed for a price, whatever the agreement was. When you lease it out, when you rent it out, you have, a, you have the 
covenant basis of the contractual obligations. And the employer has his obligations and the employees have their obligations. And this is the, co- the contract in the lease or in the, in the uh, labor agreement, we would say today. And then went on a journey. He's not even on hand. Uh, I expect this Oika Despotes probably has estates in lots of different places. And he actually doesn't personally come back to get anything. He's going to send slaves. He's going to send his son. He doesn't live here. This is, an, this is one of his diversified investments. He lives wherever he lives. He's, he's elsewhere. Okay. And he rents it out. He rents it out. Now, that is interesting because he actually has slaves. We know he has batches of slaves. The first group has, I think, pretty well to say it's, it's a group of three. One was beaten, one was killed, and one was stoned. And I think it's natural to, to take that as the complete listing of the, of the group. And then he sends another group, larger than the first, so more than three. We're not told how many. They did the same thing to them, somehow uh, beating, killing, and stoning in whatever proportion. So we've got all these slaves. Why doesn't he put slaves in this vineyard? If he put slaves in this vineyard, they could work it, and he wouldn't have to pay them. Okay? But he doesn't put slaves in the vineyard. He actually rents it out. He actually provides it for tenant farmers. Okay? And this is, this is important. You've got to understand this. And this might be awkward for us because we're 21st century American capitalists or former capitalists, quasi-capitalists, used to be capitalists. Um, the idea, if I'm going to start up a business, I'm not going to weigh out my, my labor costs to consider, well, what would it cost me uh, with employees and what would it cost me with slaves? Okay. We don't, that's not our option anymore. I'm not advocating we go back to that. Please understand. But that was an option in, the, in the, the most of human history. Okay, other than the last 500 years, last couple hundred years, okay, um, you have to uh, consider the the benefits of of uh, the slave labor rather than employed labor or hired labor, and and for whatever his own motivation was, reasons or what have you, chose to not put slaves here, but chose to uh, to rent it out, and this provides local employment in this community. This provides the, the, the interaction of the commerce between him and the residents of this, wherever it was this vineyard was planted, okay, since he doesn't live here. All right. So that's everything he did. What did they do? Nothing except wickedness and complain and desire it all. They think it's theirs. They think it's theirs. It's not theirs. And killing the heir doesn't make them the heir. But they think, hey, if we kill the heir, then the inheritance can be ours. So the tenant farmers, the term is Georgos. You know anybody named George? Okay. George comes from this uh, Greek word. Geo, meaning earth, and ergos, meaning worker. Worker of the earth, a Georgos. G-E-O-R-G-O-S, Georgos. Strong number 1092, it has 19 New Testament uses. No need to really go look at all of them because it means farmer. <laughs> okay? And, or, you know, vine grower. 
you know, depending on the crop, you can, in English, we could give it a maybe a more specific label, but regardless of the crop, they would be a worker of the earth, a tenant farmer. And this is not unusual. This was true in the ancient world. It was true in the medieval world. It was true in the, in the Renaissance era. It's true on into modern times. That, uh, that uh, free citizens uh, would make themselves available as labor uh, on land that didn't belong to them, but uh, for the benefit of whoever the land was that it did belong to, and so forth. In fact, a lot of the immigrants to this country originally came over on an endangered service uh, basis, uh, offering a certain time period of labor on somebody else's farm, and in exchange, then they would have their own land uh, stake that they could claim. See. And so, what are they doing? Well, they illustrate a panorama of satanic philosophies. And, and I just left the point at that. I started to spell it out, and I got to about F. A, B, C, D, E, and F. You can get five or six different satanic philosophies that all underlie this. First of all is just the brutality of um, we're going to get our way through violence and intimidation. Isn't that a worldly way of thinking? Okay. And then uh, if, if intimidation doesn't work, then we can resort to murder if necessary. Um, the refusal to honor we're supposed to give honor where honor is due. This isn't their crop. This is the landowner's crop. And, and they claim that by their working it, that somehow they have right to possession is, is flawed. It's actually a communistic mentality. The, uh, the labor theory of value, if you're, uh, if you're familiar with such a thing, that, that imparts value to a commodity by virtue of the labor that's put into producing it is, uh, underlies most of the, the collectivist mindset that fills this world today. Ignoring, of course, the fact that the labor was agreed to by the two parties in the covenant relationship. That's what the adversary hates. Okay? Uh, the idea that, and that's why the whole... Um, conflict arises. Why do you think there's a conflict between labor and management? Why do you think that there's this conflict between the workers and the owners in a business? And all of the whining about why is it not fair that the worker gets eight bucks an hour and Michael Dell's a billionaire? The, the reason the tension is there is spelled out in this passage and spelled out in all of Scripture when it comes to the nature of Satan and his hatred for God the Father and his covenant agreements. Now, when he rented it out to them, did they, uh, did they object to whatever the terms were? Evidently not. They accepted the terms. They entered into the covenant agreement. He leased out this vineyard. And the truth is, we don't have to know what the specific terms are. It's irrelevant because they, they, uh, they're rewriting it to, to please themselves. This is our vineyard. Really. And if we kill the air, if we can kill the air, then we can take it for ourselves. How do you become the air by killing the... the how do you become the legitimate air by killing the legitimate air? See, the answer is you don't. But you're not claiming to be an air. You're just simply claiming to be entitled to it without being an heir. In fact, you're denying that, that there should be an heir. See, 
And is this also not one of the satanic philosophies? That's why we have the inheritance taxes we have. Why should rich people pass on their wealth to their children? The children didn't work for it. They just won life's lottery. They were born into a lucky family. They should not be entitled to anything when their parents die. That should go pay, be paid back to society. Because that rich guy stole from society. That's how he got rich. Okay? If you're not familiar with this, um, I don't know where you've been. This is, this, is the, this is the generation we're in. And this is the mentality I'm describing. And these Georgoi are illustrating this. We can kill the air and seize the inheritance. Seize it. We're not entitled to it. There's no righteousness here, but they're going to seize it. You understand? So, if, uh, by the way, this, this is one of the passages that we would use along with Genesis chapter 2. Understand, when God created the earth and then he planted the garden, the garden was a cultivated, planted, shaped place. Okay? It wasn't wilderness. It wasn't just wild planet Earth. Adam and Eve didn't just, you know, live in a jungle and, you know, graze for their sustenance. He planted a garden. And that's a cultivated land. All right? And that is actually putting work to the land. And that's what we're commanded to do. Cultivate the earth. Keep it. Tend it. Not abuse it. Not worship it. Okay? But use it. Make use of it. We have sovereignty over the land. It's given to the realm of humanity. It's why Satan hates it so much. It's why Satan substitutes the creature for the creator. Substitutes the sovereignty. So instead of having sovereignty over the earth, we worship the earth. And we want to leave it pristine. We want to leave it untouched. See? And this is now a natural wetland. If you had divine viewpoint, you would look at it and say, that's a swamp. We need to drain that swamp. And as a drained swamp, we can actually use it. We can get productive use out of the land. And land reclamation can actually produce additional acreage that can be lived on and can be owned and can be made valuable. See, that it comes down to your philosophy. Are you worshiping the creature? Or are you worshiping the creator? Are you exercising the delegated dominion that the creator has vested within the realm of humanity? So, um, like I say, there's a lot here. When he planted the garden and he described his boundaries and he described the rivers, you understand water rights are part of God's design for human occupation. And the well-watered garden was a place of value. Water rights and the ownership of water rights are designed by God to be humanly owned and humanly claimed. Likewise, he describes the gold and the bedellum and the ores. The mineral rights are a feature of Genesis chapter 2. You can teach biblical economics and never even get out of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Okay? And then when you do finally get out of Genesis 1 and 2, after how many hours of biblical economics, you can come here. And you can see some things here related to the Oikodespates and the Georgos. And you can glean a system here that will uh, present a biblical pattern for that which pleases him. And, uh, and you'll start to have some understanding over why the devil motivates the things he motivates. 
Okay? And so that should then leave you not surprising. All right. So, uh, different elements that happen here. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. And they should be, and, and instead of being thankful that they can provide the produce to the one who owns it, that they can receive the payment that they had agreed to, that they were uh, free workers in a voluntary covenant with another party. Okay? You know, if you're a slave, you can't sign a contract. If you're a slave, you have, you're not a person. You're not a legal entity. Your property. And so here are these free men, free workers, free farmers, tenant farmers, who have the authority, the right, the privilege to enter into covenants, to enter into contracts, enter into agreements, and they ought to be living up to their end of the agreement. And by so doing, they profit, they make the agreed upon salary, they have the opportunity to provide for their family, to save, and whatever else. On a voluntary basis. Anytime you understand it, anytime you have the voluntary exchange in the contract, then um, it, you have the uh, you have the fairest exchange of goods and services because it's on a voluntary basis. No one forced, no one um, coerced. And if you want to replace it, what are you going to replace it with? Slavery. Those are your options. These vine growers ought to be thankful they're not slaves. All right. They will respect my son. Yeah, sure they will. <laughs> now, it's interesting. The religious leaders that Jesus addressed understood completely the message that he delivered, realizing too late that they were in the story. And we see this here in verses 41 and verses 45. They understood the message and they responded properly. Yes, those wit wretches, they need to come to our wretched end. He will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proper proceeds, the proceeds of the proper seasons. The, uh, the, 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 the profit from the land belongs to the landowner. The, um, there's different terms for that under uh, common law and, and uh, other legal systems. Um, that's what's expected. That's what's expected. And what they don't realize, of course, is that this parable is talking about them. That they don't own this world. They're simply stewards. They're simply in a covenant agreement with the Oika Despotes of the universe. And they're supposed to be working to bear His fruit. You and I need to understand that from John 15. The Father's the vine dresser. Jesus is the vine. And we're supposed to be bearing fruit different metaphor but similar concept and so if uh if you're going to be in violation of this covenant a covenant of works then uh, you're going to pay the consequences to that thankfully of course our salvation is not based on a covenant of works our salvation is based on the unconditional covenants of what god promised that he will do so that's a different a different doctrine so February, we're supposed to be done with cedar, right? <laughs> when does cedar end? All right. 
realizing too late that they're in the story. Matthew 21, 45. Point C. Jesus rightly related his present generation with a prophesied rejection of the Christ. And this, I've only got three minutes left. I'm going to introduce this and I'm going to give you something to think about between now and then. Because there's a verse here. You probably can, I've already spotted it. There's a verse here that causes problems with people who are sloppy. And I don't want anybody here to be sloppy. Point C, Jesus rightly related his present generation with prophesied rejection of the Christ. They answered that those wretches are going to come to a wretched end. And Jesus doesn't say, you're right, now wasn't that a nice story? (laughs) He says, you're right, and did you not read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? Okay, He's going to take this parable back to Old Testament prophecy. And while he's pinning it on them, he's teaching some very important doctrine. And we've got to understand this. Because they are going to come under divine judgment. Now, here's the danger, though. What do you think people do with um, verse 43? The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Replacement theology. That's right. Yeah, you see that right off the bat. Okay. And at first glance, could could that be a, an assumption? I mean, could that be a understanding? Yeah, yeah, it could be. Yeah, at first glance, in fact, if you're going to build something and that's the only verse you're looking at, that you'd, that's probably where you'd go, probably where I'd go. Okay. But it doesn't say who those people are, and it doesn't say when it's going to happen, it doesn't say under what conditions are they going to bear that fruit. Why is it that this other people are going to bear fruit when this people aren't? What changed in the meantime? And so, because none of that information is contained in verse 43, if you make that interpretive assumption, then that's what you've done. You've made an assumption. You've you've taken a theology you like and you've put it back into this verse to say, see, there it fits. But that's where you got sloppy. Because... What Jesus is doing is, is bringing in Psalm 118 and bringing in the prophecies. That removing their stewardship is prophet, was prophesied in Psalm 118. But so too was the second advent prophesied in the same Psalm 118. And it's Israel that, that enters into the kingdom. It's Israel that has the unconditional covenant promises. So taking it away from this people and giving it to another people you got a week to figure out what that's talking about. But you know it's not the church. The kingdom of heaven is not taken away from the Jews and given to the church. Okay? Scrap that. Find what this is really talking about. And uh, give it some thought. And one week from today we'll come back and we will return. And we'll be spending some time in Psalm 118 so that we see how it comes together. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Your word is truth. Father... Uh, don't ever allow us to. If we start to get prideful, if we start to confuse ownership with stewardship, Father, then jump on us hard. Remind us, discipline us, do whatever it takes to remind us that we are simply your stewards. We are not the owners. We are in your son, and that's the only right we have to anything. Uh, we are heirs, not because we killed the heir and we seized it, but we're heirs because you killed your son. 
and freely gave us his righteousness, placing us in him. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.